You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 51, The Future of Depression Treatment with Dr. Benicio Frey. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Minding the Brain. For those of you that are long-time listeners or even short-time listeners, you'll know that very recently we recorded a whole episode on the topic of depression. And if you did listen to that episode, if you haven't, that's fine, it's episode 35. But if you did listen, you'll know that we talked a lot about the issue of, while depression is fairly common among most adults and even youth, the treatments for depression are still significantly lacking. Today, joining us in the studio, we have Dr. Benicio Frey. Dr. Frey is a professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University. He's also the academic head of the Mood Disorders Program and medical director of the Women's Health Concerns Clinic at St. Joseph's Healthcare. He has a vast and highly successful research program exploring various tools and treatments for major depressive disorder, and he is an expert in neuroimaging, women's mental health, and sleep and biological rhythms. He's also on the executive committee for the Canadian Biomarker Integration Network in Depression, or CanBind, a mouthful, but we'll talk about it. And this is why he'll be speaking to us at Minding the Brain today. So welcome to the studio, Dr. Frey. Hello, everybody. And thanks, uh, Kim, for having me here today. So to get us started, uh, I think even though we do have a whole episode on depression, I think it's worth sort of reminding our listeners exactly what is depression. And you as a clinician scientist, um, I think it's fantastic that you're here with us so that you can speak to it from your own perspective. So what exactly is depression and what are the symptoms? Depression is typically characterized by episodes that last uh, two weeks or more, when uh, most of the time, People have feelings of sadness, uh, tearfulness, or hopelessness. They may also feel irritable, have angry outbursts, or feel frustrated about things. Uh, They also report very commonly loss of interest or pleasure in things they typically enjoy, which often leads to social isolation. Uh, Very commonly also, we see changes in sleep patterns, including either difficulty sleeping or people reporting they're sleeping too much. There's also very commonly fatigue, lack of energy, making it really, really hard for people to complete their normal tasks. There are also changes in appetite, like either loss of appetite or people sometimes report that they're sleeping too much. Uh, Very commonly, these episodes are also associated with anxiety and or restlessness. Um, Depression can also affect something called psychomotor speed, which means that people often feel they are thinking, talking, or moving more slowly than than their normal. Uh, It's very common, they say, they have feelings of worthlessness or guilt. Often people ruminate and blame themselves about things they should not be blamed about. Very commonly, there are uh, signs of uh, Cognitive impairment, what, what that is, is uh, difficulty thinking, difficulty concentrating, difficulty making you know, regular decisions in their lives, and also difficulties with memory, remembering things. And of course, uh, depending on the severity of depression, some people may have uh, thoughts that they would be better off dead or even suicidal thoughts or attempts. So you've just listed a fairly lengthy symptom profile and, you know, it, it kind of goes with our 
general thinking of depression as somebody who wants to sit in bed, is very sad, doesn't may not want to eat or is eating too much, has sleep problems. But based on this list that you've presented to us and, and based on this sort of common belief that we have about depression, I want to ask you this question. Does everybody experience depression equally? The answer is, is no. This is, a, this is very important for people to know that depression may have actually quite different clinical presentations. Uh, for instance, sometimes uh, I would say children very commonly present with irritable mood rather than crying and sadness like we see more so in adults. Also, even um, adults at the same age, uh, you know, same socioeconomic status, like similar uh, profile, may present with uh, very different types of depression. For instance, one person might present with difficulty sleeping, lack of appetite, social withdrawal, while others might present with the opposite. Like they report they're sleeping too much, they're eating too much, they're very anxious, agitated, and restless. So yes, depression can uh, definitely present with uh, uh, difficult, uh, different you know, clinical profiles. For sure, yeah. And, and to my knowledge as well, can be experienced differently between genders, right? Or, you know, I know we're talking about the gender binary here, recognizing gender is on a continuum, but a lot of the scientific research is done typically on a gender binary. And we obviously need more on those that don't identify. But to my knowledge, those identifying male and female also have kind of a different constellation of symptoms, right? Or there's some that are experienced more commonly among females, like the crying versus males irritability. Is that correct? Yeah, so... Um uh, females, they typically present more with anxiety than males, uh, whereas males, so they present more often with uh, irritable mood, even though both can present, uh, you know, uh, both ways. Uh, but also, uh, it's important to acknowledge that, uh, you know, uh, uh, pulling a little bit uh, towards the the women's mental health field, you know, something that is uh, not a lot uh, discussed is how the normal hormonal fluctuation can actually impact and, and, and change the clinical presentation of uh, depression, even uh, risk of depression. So this is something to consider as well. For sure. Our good old HPG and HPA axes, eh? That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> For those of you not wondering what I just said, uh, if you go to, I think it's episode one on stress, I talk about the uh, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. It is another mouthful, but it's our main neural system that uh, governs stress and it's regulated or it talks to the other uh, endocrine system that regulates our uh, gonadal hormones. And that's why females, uh, um, biologically uh, identified females, uh, when they fluctuate with their menstrual cycle or even um, you know during adolescence or uh, menopause, different periods of our lives where hormones are fluctuating, we can see uh, significant changes in mood. So I'm going to take us on, you know, we're going to take a right turn and, and talk less about the clinical profile and more, you know, now at the treatment perspective, right? Because this is really the focus of our talk today. And our conversation is on the fact that while yes, there are a significant proportion of adults and even youth that are diagnosed with depression, um, I, I this is my, my statistical uh, knowledge of this is probably less than yours. My understanding is about half of, of individuals that are diagnosed don't really have adequate treatment. Uh, despite the range of pharmacotherapeutics that are at our fingertips, as well as gold standard uh, therapeutics such as cognitive behavioral therapy. So let's, let's dig in there. So how exactly, you know, is depression treated? What, what do we, what, what is our, you know, first line of defense, second line of defense, and so on? 
Yes. So if we look at, um, you know, most current clinical guidelines, you you see that depression is typically treated with uh, uh, pharmacological and also non-pharmacological interventions. Um, antidepressant agents uh, are considered first-line treatments uh, of, of depression, uh, but other medications may be used in combination with antidepressants to improve uh, clinical response. We call those uh, adjunct uh, treatments. So these are uh, medications that are not antidepressants uh, on their own, uh, but when they are added to antidepressants, they are proven to boost the antidepressant uh, response, um, at least, uh, you know, uh, to some extent. So they're very commonly used in the, in the clinical practice. Beyond pharmacotherapy, psychotherapy is a very, very important component, in my opinion. Even though I'm not a psychotherapist myself, I prescribe psychotherapy uh, every day um, because I think it's it's critically important for depression. And uh, there are many psychotherapies, uh, you know, that have proven to be successful in the treatment of depression, including, like you, you mentioned already, cognitive behavioral therapy, but there are others like interpersonal therapy and something that is a bit more uh, um, novel, but clearly very important, which is called behavioral activation that deals a lot with, you know, moving your body, you know, engaging in, in pleasant activities and planning them and, and, you know, and going through the, through the strategies and, of course, uh, other uh, modalities. There's another domain called uh, neurostimulation. So uh, things like uh, transmagnetic uh, uh, stimulation um, or TMS can be also helpful uh, for some, pa- some people. Uh, electroconvulsive therapy is still, you know, used certainly for certain cases, particularly those that we call treatment resistant to other uh, modalities. Um, I would like, I always like to say when it comes to exercise that, uh, it comes to treatment, that exercise is a powerful antidepressant and should be uh, used more often and prescribed more often. Uh, if you talk to people that recover from uh, severe depression, a, a large percentage of them will tell you that, you know, eating healthy and having regular exercise uh, keeps them their mood in check. Uh, oftentimes, uh, though, it is a combination of some of these different treatments that are required for, for us to see the best uh, outcomes in terms of treatment response. And very importantly for the audience, uh, continuing monitoring the symptoms long-term is very, very helpful in uh, learning the early signs of depression uh, and with the goal to prevent the reoccurrence of these repetitive uh, depressive episodes. Thank you. I want to take a moment just to comment on your your comment about exercise, and and I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, For those of you uh, new to our podcast, we have an episode eight, I believe, on exercise in Minding the Brain, and and we talk a lot about the benefits of exercise and how it's just pumping glucose up to your brain. It's putting all that lovely oxygen, really getting uh, those growth factors um, upregulated, which are literally uh, building your brain and and contributing to plasticity or the changing uh, circuitry of the brain, which we know is, is for for some reason, very crucial in normal uh, brain cognition. Um, so for sure, I, I love that clinically, we're really starting to recognize this It's very difficult, of course, what's the dose, you know, how much, how, what, what type of exercise, there's lots of challenges with that. But um, I'm really grateful that, that this is being uh, conceived of uh, clinically as something that is could be 
prescribed. Um, I also want to emphasize the point you made about long-term monitoring, right? We tend to think about, um, you know, in the way that healthcare is delivered, you get this diagnosis and then you get a, a period of treatment and it's like, okay, well, you're all good, right? But this is not the case, right? And and, and this is really crucial in terms of how we fund uh, treatment for, for diseases and disorders that involve mental health because sometimes they are lifelong and and somebody who has a significant relapse and recurrence of uh, their episodes, as you say, long-term monitoring can really help to prevent that. But do we have the funds to support that? And do we have the, 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 the architecture in place uh, in order to provide that sort of monitoring? So thank you for, for mentioning these uh, very important points and for policy, of course. So bearing in mind the, you know, the, the massive toolbox that we have, massive, well, it's large, uh, of these different types of treatments that are available. What exactly are the challenges then? I mean, you know, obviously this is why we're here today. It's not as easy as, oh, here's, you know, first line, prescribe this, second line, try that. Um, as, as we know, it can be a long road before somebody has successful treatment. So uh, talk to us a little bit about these challenges. Thank you, Kim. Yes, so there are obviously... Uh, many challenges that, uh, you know, people with depression face and we also as uh, uh, clinicians we face when it comes to treatment of depression. Um, I would certainly highlight that one of those uh, challenges being the potential side effects uh, of each uh, treatment. Uh, obviously, uh, the treatments that I mentioned uh, need to be discussed, uh, you know, in terms of uh, what to expect in terms of benefits, but very importantly also in terms of side effects because uh, some people have uh, very minimal or even no side effects and others have uh, you know more severe side effects and they need to be uh, discussed. It's also very important when it comes to pharmacology to uh, let people know that uh, you know a large percentage of side effects, uh, uh, close to 70% of side effects, are mild and disappear within a couple of weeks uh, as their body get used to the medication. So side effects are actually really common in the first uh, two, three weeks, but um, a large number of them actually become minimum or even disappear. So if uh, people know these numbers ahead of time, it might help them sticking with uh, the medication a little longer until their body get used to it. Of course, I'm talking about mild, mild to moderate side effects. I'm not talking about severe side effects. If there's anything severe, uh, this treatment should be stopped, uh, obviously, right away. And the other main challenge, uh, you know, it's uh, probably the main topic of our discussion today is that, uh, you know, we don't know as clinicians in advance which of these widely diverse types of treatment, mm -hmm. neurostimulation, medication, psychotherapy, exercise, uh, etc., which of those uh, treatments is the right treatment for that right person in front of us? In psychiatry, we don't have yet any blood work, any MRI to guide us, you know, the best treatment. Like other areas of medicine, they have blood tests, they have, you know, ultrasound tests and things that guide uh, uh, treatment. We don't have that yet in, in, in psychiatry. And this is exactly what the, the Canadian Biomarker Integration Network of Depression, or CAMBINE, for short, is, uh, is trying to accomplish. So let's go there. This this is the crux of this interview, um, the development of CANBIND or the Canadian Biomarker Integration Network in Depression. Can you explain to our audience what exactly is CANBIND? Yes. So um, CANBIND is a, is a network of uh, uh, 
scientists, people with lived experience, uh, uh, clinicians, you know, uh, it, the, it, we are a very large team. Uh, we've been together for 11 years now uh, with a goal to develop uh, biomarkers uh, or biological markers that can tell us uh, which of the various uh, treatments for depression is the right one for that uh, specific person. So our uh, dream, our goal, our mission is to um, push uh, research towards uh, personalized, something called these days personalized uh, medicine, uh, an approach where we would have like a, a, an increased chance to assist that person in front of us. And for that, we hope to be able to integrate uh, um, information on that person's biology, uh, whether it's from uh, electroencephalogram or EEG, whether it's from an MRI scan, like uh, looking at the, how the brain is activated or deactivated, or how, you know, using brain structure, uh, volume, surface. We also look at blood tests, including several types of measurements like microRNAs, like genetic signatures, like inflammatory markers, specific proteins, proteomics, like anything that uh, uh, blood tests can uh, can give us. Uh, and we will, we, our research has been to incorporate these types of uh, biological uh, tests into clinical trials to, you know, um, investigate uh, predictors, which are of all these biomarkers, which are the ones that can tell us with uh, a bit more precision what will be the best uh, treatment for, for that person. Um, we know, for instance, these days that uh, uh, clinical trials, like the traditional clinical trials these days are, are based on average groups, right? You have a large number of people, you know, X percentage of those people responded to the medication, X percentage responded to the placebo or no treatment. And then if that difference is significant, that may, that treatment is, is effective. But we don't know a lot of information about those who really, really, really responded well and are pushing, you know, the accuracy up. And those who actually didn't respond at all are, are pushing, you know, the accuracy down. We know that the uh, Nowadays, as we prescribe, let's say, an antidepressant, about a third of people will feel great, back to their baseline, feeling awesome with the medication. Uh, about a third of them will feel better, but not yet great, like we call that partial response. And about a third of people will have uh, absolutely no change, no response, or even, or even feel uh, worse. So um, that's what I mean about trying to go for a personalized approach, going, staying away from uh, average trends and try to understand the biology of, of that person. So that's what we want to change with Cambine. Yeah, it's kind of flipping the idea of biomarkers on its head somewhat, right? Because like you were saying, there there is no biomarker for depression, unlike there might be a biomarker for other diseases in the human body and then about the heart or the liver, what have you. You can't go into your doctor's office, explain your symptom profile, and then they take your blood or saliva or scan your brain and say, oh, yes, well, that's depression, right? It just is not there. But what we can do is you have somebody coming in, say, explains their symptoms, then we can maybe take them through a battery of tests and take their blood and take their saliva and maybe do a brain scan or run an EEG. And based on measurement of specific um, proteins or a specific brain signature, we might be able to better predict their response to a given treatment. And then we can potentially um, prescribe that treatment earlier on instead of going through a process of 
you know, trial and error where we put you on this med, it doesn't really work, we get partial response, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it is a really interesting way. Um, and like, as you say, it's the personalized medicine approach to the treatment of mental health, which is wonderful. And, and in this case, depression. And, and riffing on your comment of, you know, this 30, 30, 30, right? 30 feel great, 30 feel okay, partial response, and 30 have no change or no response. I know even in pharmaceutical trials, this could lead to some potential agents that have excellent effect in some populations perhaps being not um, pursued, right? Because it's, oh, we're not, we're not seeing 100% um, uh, change in treatment or change in response. So uh, I think this is, this is such important work and really um, validates some of the, the excellent neuroscience work that we've been doing for years to look at uh, various changes in, in the brain and, and the body with uh, in depression and the animal models too, which are also important preclinically. So I, you know, I, I know that um, we had a chat earlier, we've had a, a bit of a uh, pre-interview talking about some of the important work that CanBind is, is leading. And, and I want to pick up a comment, uh, something that you mentioned to me, uh, which I think is really interesting, that you indicated that there's some evidence now that treatment-resistant depression may actually be untreated PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. And for those of you folks that don't have a lot of experience um, in certain terms in, in the field, by treatment-resistant depression, this is somebody who, they you know, they've tried everything in the book. They've tried everything that Dr. Frey was, was indicating earlier, and it's really still not um, having great impact on changing their mood. So can you talk to us a little bit about how these findings came about, how we we were starting to realize that maybe the way that we're looking at treatment um, is, we need to look at it from a different perspective? Yes, um, of course. So um, even though we have not uh, yet in Cambine, um formally tested the, the, the issue of uh, PTSD and, and depression, which is a very important topic, there is uh, certainly plenty of scientific evidence already uh, out there from many, many good studies showing that the history of uh, severe traumatic events like uh, sexual trauma, physical trauma, verbal abuse, uh, including PTSD uh, in its uh, formal way, uh, can decrease the response to standard treatments uh, of depression. Uh, PTSD actually normally responds uh, better to therapies that specifically target the emotional consequences of severe traumatic events through psychotherapy uh, rather than through uh, pharmacotherapy. But what, what, what we found uh, thus far in the overall clinical trials that we've done in depression um, is that there were certain specific EEG waves. Uh, there were certain uh, uh, brain volume uh, measurements, like the tail of the hippocampus, for instance, is uh, one of the, the biomarkers we found. Certain profiles of brain connectivity, particularly um, resting state, fMRI. Uh, so you, you look at how the brain is connecting, you know, the, the various networks uh, through, uh, through MRI, also certain specific microRNAs, and this uh, cl and a clinical, very interesting clinical domain called uh, interest uh, activity domain. Uh, they all uh, predicted a response to the treatment in uh, one of our large uh, trials. And we also collaborate with international groups trying to replicate some of these results in different populations because as these results are replicated in, of course, 
or the groups of people with depression, it definitely enhances, uh, you know, this, the, the scientific meaning and, you know, the impact of these uh, discoveries. So what we did now, we put all these predictors into a, uh, you know, um, complex statistical uh, analysis and took the top two biomarkers that had the strongest prediction of a treatment response in depression, which I can tell you turned out to be um, uh, EEG waves and the, the interest activity symptom domain. And we are now using this information to take the biomarker approach into the next step, which will be to randomize people with depression into a biomarker-driven allocation of treatment. So the biomarkers will tell us which treatment we should put them on uh, versus uh, no biomarker, and then see if the biomarker allocation will, in fact, improve treatment response. And then if it does, if these results are positive, we will then have uh, one of the first uh, compelling stories uh, to bring these biomarkers close to the clinical practice. And hopefully for the first time, we'll see in the near future clinicians out there having something tangible that they can use to assist their, their treatment choice. Wow, that's so cool. Okay, let's switch gears and talk about brain code. What exactly is brain code? It sounds like something from the future. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so uh, brain code is the uh, Ontario Brain uh, Institute's um, neuroinformatics platform. So the OBI, the Ontario Brain Institute, is uh, the, the major supporter of uh, Canbind. We are one of their um, discovery grants. And OBI has this uh, outstanding neuroinformatics platform called BrainCode, which assists us with uh, data management, like integration of these large amounts of, say, neuroimaging, clinical data, molecular data. Uh, also, you know, assist us with data storage, and also there they have a space for uh, data analysis uh, inside BrainCode. But what to me one of the perhaps the most important feature of brain code is the infrastructure to share this data openly with the scientific community. So right now I can tell that both Canbind and also other research teams of the discovery teams from OBI, they have already released a large amount of data through brain code, which is currently available to any independent group that want to use the data to support their research. Uh, as far as um, uh, Cambine itself, the current um, available data includes uh, 211 individuals with major depressive disorder, which was part of our Cambine 1 cohort. Uh, they were all medication-free at baseline, which is nice because, uh, you know, what you're seeing, their biomarkers uh, at baseline are not influenced by any current treatment because they were all medication-free at baseline. Uh, they were age uh, 18 to 60 years old. The average is about 33, 34 years old. And also, very importantly, they were recruited from uh, many sites across Canada, like UBC, Vancouver, UHN here in Toronto, McMaster University, Hamilton, Queen's University, uh, at Kingston, University of Calgary, and then CAMH. Um, other uh, partners uh, also include the St. Mike Hospital in Toronto, Dalhousie University, University of Ottawa, McGill University, uh, Guelph University, and University of Ann Arbor in Michigan. We have a, a U.S. site as well. Uh, and as people, uh, you know, log into BrainCode to get access to uh, uh, this rich uh, data set, 
uh, they will see a whole bunch of clinical questionnaires across multiple domains like sleep patterns, anxiety, of course, severity of depression, quality of life. We have a whole bunch of uh, uh, cognitive testing that has been done and is available there. We use the CNSVS Vital Signs uh, uh, program. Uh, and then, of course, you have access to the brain structure, brain function, you know, some of the uh, molecular markers uh, and everything associated with Cambine right there. So cool. And and so is the idea that you're continuing to recruit into this database and as you can bring um, new participants or patients in and then follow them and track them as they get treatment? And yes, so yes. Yeah. So uh, we are already uh, working on the second wave of release, which will include then all what you're saying, all about the longitudinal aspect of this uh, cohort. So we'll have repeated scans, we'll have repeated blood work, repeated EEG, repeated clinical questionnaires, and very soon we're going to launch the second wave, which will include all of this, uh, you know, clinical and biomarker uh, information on, on these individuals uh, uh, after treatment as well. So people can, you know, do their research on the impact of treatment on, uh, you know, their, their biology. Yeah, this is huge. It's so valuable for those of you that don't work in human research or don't know how complicated and hard it is um, to recruit participants, particularly with a lot of sensitive data, such as um, what's being included in, in, in this database. Uh, this is so valuable and rich. And and I, I think this speaks to the nature of and importance of open access and open data sources and how, uh, you know, we can't keep each reinventing our own wheels at our in institutions and working collectively. I think what's the expression? If you want to uh, uh, go fast, go alone. If you, if you want to go far, go together. Um, and I, I really think that this uh, embodies that notion that there's all these amazing clinicians and scientists and researchers working together um, to improve really patient outcomes, right? It's at the end of the day, we're, we're hoping to make it better. So on that note, what, what are the next steps for CanBind? So the, the next steps for CanBind um, towards this goal of an effective personalized approach for treatment choice in depression uh, will be to conduct uh, the next big trial, which we are calling uh, Optimum D trial. I kind of alluded about this uh, trial uh, a little earlier today, but uh, uh, just as a summary, we'll randomize people with depression for the first time according to their biomarker signature. And we're going to compare those randomized to the biomarker approach versus those randomized to no biomarker. And then we're going to show whether or not using these biomarkers can indeed improve uh, response to treatment in depression. And, and that will be uh, huge uh, if we are able to, to show that and, and accomplish that and really change, you know, the landscape of uh, treatment of, uh, of depression. Um, and also, uh, as far as next steps, we are embarking in a very exciting new phase of our research uh, uh, operations where we will uh, expand the study of depression to allow people that are normally excluded from current or traditional clinical trials. For instance, if you look at the inclusion criteria, people that are, are enrolled in, in clinical trials for depression these days, uh, many, many, many clinical trials exclude people with 
major comorbid conditions such as, you know, concurrent PTSD, uh, people that use uh, drugs, people that have psychotic symptoms like delusions or hallucinations, uh, people with bipolar disorder, uh, etc. So in the next phase of our research, we will embrace this uh, so-called, quote-unquote, heterogeneity observed in depression, uh, where we see different types of depression and different types of, uh, you know, concurrent uh uh, conditions, uh, uh, e even beyond mental health, you know, people with significant um, general medical conditions are typically also uh, excluded, like uh, people with chronic pain, for instance, cardiovascular illness, for instance. So we will embrace all of this heterogeneity, include them all uh, in our next uh, phase of our uh, research, uh, and then uh, hopefully try use that... Uh, information to stratify, you know, what exactly this uh, treatments, uh, treatment approach will, will look like for those people with those particular uh, profiles. And of course, uh, looking at uh, improvement in treatment response. Really awesome. I I'm particularly love this idea of broadening your inclusion uh, criteria. Be, as somebody that works with the substance using community, we know you know, substance use disorder is never, ever a unitary uh, disorder. It's it's often comorbid with other conditions such as depression, quite commonly and anxiety and trauma. So to exclude those from studies, it, it, it is, you know, it's I think it's what's led to a lot of the challenges that we have in, in treatment uh, for mental health is because we, we're siloed, right? And it's uh, really been challenging. Oh, we, you know, we can't take you in on our depression trial because you have comorbid X and we can't, you can't come in and have substance use treatment because you actually also have this. It's, it's you know, led to a hornet's nest of problems. So I'm really glad to see that you're broadening this. So speaking of broadening, let's take it one step further to the future. And um, you've talked about the next steps for CanBind. What do you think the future says about um, research in depression and treatment? Yeah, so, I, I mean, in my opinion, the future of um, research in depression uh, will involve uh, uh, bridging the understanding of the several biological and psychological mechanisms behind uh, why people feel depressed uh, and develop uh, really more specific treatments targeted to the needs of that uh, person in front of you rather than treatments based on uh, group average. Uh, but I think uh, most importantly, uh, Next step after that will be the development of effective strategies to prevent uh, depression, to decrease the risk of this illness recurrence because, uh, you know, chronic depression tends to be recurrent. Uh, and that's the main, I think, uh, goal for, for the future. What can we do early enough to change the trajectory of uh, something that is called chronic depression or recurrent depression? Uh, which will then obviously uh, have a huge uh, impact on how uh, how much we can we will be able to decrease the burden of the depression on the person, on their families, on their loved ones, on the society. So everybody will benefit from it. And out of curiosity, do you think some of that prevention will be around the emphasis of lifestyle factors such as diet, exercise, sleep, social connections, spirituality, etc.? Because you know you sort of spoke a little bit about exercise. I don't think you mentioned diet, but we we did talk about it earlier because I do think that those 
factors are crucial, uh, certainly in mitigating or, or um, decreasing symptoms. But preventatively, do you think that there's a future there as well with lifestyle factors? Uh, well, lifestyle factors are, are extremely important. You know, um, for instance, exercise, let's take the exercise approach. Uh, exercise, not only biologically, does increase like uh, uh, positive uh, proteins that are protective for the brain. Uh, some of them, same targets, targets of some of our, our treatments, but also regulates uh, our circadian rhythms, our biological clock, you know, and also depending on the exercise, it creates a sense of community, sense of belonging. People start networking, so their social network and social support uh, is increased. Uh, uh, exercise increases our resilience to stress, right? Uh, and the same uh, is true for, for diet, right? A healthy diet also increases our resilience to, you know, normal life stress. And if we are less resilient for any reason, you know, we might be more prone to develop depression. So um, the other area in terms of uh, uh, prevention is, is the consequences of early trauma, right? Uh, you know, over and over again, we, we, we see that early trauma has a, a negative impact and increased risk for pretty much every single mental health uh, disorder that has been studied. So what can we do early in the course of, uh, of that, not just to prevent the trauma, but the, the prevent the consequences of the trauma early enough in the life of that individual so we can you know, change the, uh, the course of uh, risk and prevent, you know, the development of these major, you know, mental illnesses. This is exactly the reason I went into science was really, I was, uh, that, that is exactly what I was interested in was understanding the impact of trauma on rewiring the brain and the body and, and how that confers vulnerability and in other cases, resilience, how we can nurture resilience in, in individuals who have experienced trauma. So I'm, I agree with you. I think there's there's work to be done. We recognize it. I'm I'm shocked that ACEs aren't uh, involved in most clinical in, inpatient assessments, particularly with a family doctor. We need to be looking at this as a, a key factor that implicates at, like virtually every major organ in in, in the body, and therefore disease uh, mortality and morbidity. So thank you, Dr. Frey. This has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I just want to know if there's anything else that you want to add uh, to our audience uh, who may be curious about um, what we've talked about today. Thank you, Kim, for uh, having me here. First of all, representing CanBind Network uh, in your Outstanding Mind in the Brain podcast. And thanks for raising awareness of uh, the importance of study, not just depression. You know, today we spoke about depression, uh, but I would say, you know, mental health conditions in general. We are living in a very different and weird uh, world uh, right now where we know younger people are particularly showing earlier signs of mental health problems, including depression. So uh, pushing for better and more effective treatments should be a priority for all of us as society. So thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for coming on Minding the Brain. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Minding the Brain is edited by Mike Contos and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. 
Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. Theme music for Minding the Brain is Plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.